Welcome to the FinTech Australia podcast, brought to you in partnership with Tier One People. I'm your host, Dexter Cousins. Today, I'm joined by David Hyman, CEO and co-founder of Lendy, one of Australia's first fintech and another great example of Aussie ingenuity and entrepreneurship. David and I talk through the Lendy journey, the secret to startup fintech success, and how to scale. Before we get into the show, I want to share an initiative between Tier 1 People and Fintech Australia, the Fintech Talent Market. COVID-19 is sadly impacting many people's jobs. So we've partnered with businesses like Lendy, Zinger, 86400, Reinventure Group, and many other Fintech Australia members so we can connect displaced workers in the industry to fintech companies with jobs. If your job has been impacted or you're a fintech in hiring mode, check out the show notes or go to tier1people.com forward slash talent. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dexter. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Now, for those of our listeners that don't know Lendy, do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and the business? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, Lendy's the leading online home loan platform in Australia. Um, what we've really tried to do is build a platform that allows borrowers to come and compare loans from any of the lenders in the market. We've got the big four on there. We've got the, the challenger banks and, and the regional banks. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is bring a bit more transparency back into, into home loans, as well as obviously enable it from a tech perspective. A little bit about me. I'm the CEO, one of four founders. We um, we started the business back in 2013, and we're now sort of 430 odd people strong across a number of cities in Australia, and obviously um, working from home at the moment. Like uh, no doubt, everyone else who's listening today. How is the the team coping with the adjustment through COVID? Yeah, look, it's been look, it's been a bit of a roller coaster the last sort of six or eight weeks. You know, like most businesses, we watched from the sidelines in kind of late January coming into February as, you know, the news started coming out of China in relation to COVID and, and what it might mean. And that very, very quickly turned into sort of, you know, BCP tests at a team level um, and ultimately it sort of landed on the whole organisation working from home like most businesses. Um, we're, I'm really mm-hmm. impressed actually with with how the team's held up. Like obviously everyone's got very different challenges you know, some people are working out of their you know, kids' bedrooms. Some people are dealing with flatmates also working from home and, you know, others have the luxury of home offices. So it's, it, you know, certainly not the same story with everyone, but everyone's, you know, on the whole coping relatively well. And I think, you know, when you sort of look at, certainly if you go for a walk down to the beach or the shops uh, or read the newspaper, the sentiment's definitely turning. As the, the market does recover, I mean, what are you seeing from a, a lendy position where you go next? Look, I guess there's a couple of things for us. Um, one is the the work from home side and the other is the underlying business. Um, the underlying business has actually been really strong through this period. We, being an online platform, obviously um, we've got a strong degree of control over who our customers are and what segments we go after. And while we've got the majority of market share in the online space for home loans, um, the actual market itself is huge. There's sort of three or $400 billion a year worth of mortgage flow. So... What that meant for us from a marketing perspective is we're able to shift our focus very early on um, into you know segments that made sense for us. Um, so the underlying business has performed 
quite strongly off the back of that and um, you know we're continuing to grow and, um, and look at other growth opportunities um, on a regular basis. The work from home piece is interesting. Uh, we, we, we had a this discussion as an executive team last night and I don't quite know where it lands, but we certainly, what you would describe as the, the prior status quo, I don't think that exists for many businesses um, as, as things start to sort of return back to some sort, sort of normality. Um, so I, I don't really know what that looks like, but excited about the opportunities that it might afford us in terms of how we think about people and culture. Mm. Great. So I guess this kind of leads nicely into the next question that I was going to ask you, which is really around the culture that you've been building at Lendy and how has that um, enabled you to kind of you know, almost seamlessly manage this huge adjustment that everybody's had to go through? Yeah, look, the culture is something for us that we have, you know, over-invested in. Like, like any high-growth startup uh, or scale-up, your people are ultimately the lifeblood of whatever you're building, no matter how low or high tech your business is. Mm. And so culture is something that we've really focused on. And I know that it's a relatively sort of motherhoody statement often, but, you know, we've got a number of people that work for the organisation that were there on day one that have seen the evolution going back to sort of 2013 and, you know, maybe they've grown up in the business and operated across a number of different roles um, and context. And having four founders um, who are all still executives and heavily involved in the business today also allows us to kind of create that direct connection across multiple functions within the business, yeah. whether it be product or technology. Um, and, and, and we've been able to sort of really leverage that in this kind of transition. Yeah. Um, we, we've noticed, where, as we've observed, businesses go through that growth stage that there are distinct kind of phases of growth is that startup phase where you you know first 50 people and then when you get to around about 75 to 100 the business changes again and it becomes fairly difficult to kind of maintain that startup feel and culture and what have what have been your observations as you've seen the business scale as to what those kind of you know challenges are and what you've done to to counteract those challenges that's a very deep and complex uh topic yeah, it is. That's why we've got a business, mate. Do yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, look, I, I like to um, analogize this often in, in terms of flaws in a building because, um, you know, often those are where those and you just sort of hit the nail on the head on some of those those ceilings that you break through. You know, when you're a single floor in a building or in a smaller office um, and going back to the Lendy journey, our kind of first big office that we had was... I think we had 50 or 60 people there and everyone knew each other and um, everyone could see each other and culture was very, very inclusive across everyone because everyone's on a single floor. You say hi when you come in, you say bye on the way out and you, know, you might have a, you know, a beer on a Thursday afternoon with, a, with, a, with someone or a group of people. The minute you move then into a bigger office um, and that's that sort of you know, 75 to 100 jump, you all of a sudden to get, get these, you know, no matter how inclusive or... Um, you know, operationally agile you remain, you start to get silos forming, whether they're cultural silos or whatever else. And so really as an organisation, you have to start increasing the level of communication. It, it all, it's only communication. And that doesn't mean, you know, sending out a group email every week. It's about thinking about how as an organisation can we bring everyone together like we used to, but being more conscious about it. So, um, you know, some of the things that we started to do was we started to, it's something that people talk about today. We run a, an annual event called the Lendy Olympics 
which is just a bit of a silly half day. We typically do it around, we didn't do it this year, um, you know, due to the lockdown, but we typically do it around Easter or Anzac Day. And, you know, the whole organisation goes out to a park, we hire some facilitators and we run a bunch of obstacle courses and gladiators and all that sort of stuff. And that really brings everyone together. Um, You know, we do things like annual conferences, which bring together, you know, groups like, you know, if I sort of fast forward to today, we've got 400 and... 30-odd people um, in Sydney. We, ro- we operate across three floors. Um, we've got an office in uh, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, um, and one in McCarty. Um, and so to bridge the gap there, there's a whole bunch of different things we've done. We've got live stream TVs with sound and audio between us and the Manila offices. We, we run annual conferences. We do, we do sort of transplanting of people in different states just to keep that culture there's no one thing. It's really just about saying, how do we keep up the lines of communication? How do you break down the barriers that form naturally between both, you know, distance or function? Mm. And and as you were growing the business, how did you uh, assess people um, when they were coming into the business that there would be a cultural fit? You got any tips that you could share? Yeah, look, this is something we've been relatively obsessive about and, and to a certain degree still exists today. Um, while it's not scalable for the founders or the executive team to interview everyone that comes into the business when you're growing very, very quickly. Um, there wouldn't be many people, certainly in any any level of seniority, that wouldn't at the very least uh, meet with one or many of the other founders or the executive team. And I think that's really, you know, it's it's that's one level of control. But also as you start to get bigger and bigger, you need to define what that culture actually is and what it means to the organisation and make sure that, you know, whether you're in an entry-level role or you're an exec or a leader in the business, that you know what are the values. And so we spent maybe sort of two years ago, we, we redefined our value set. Um, it was something that was inherent. We didn't just come up with a new set of values. It was about sort of personifying the things that existed in the business and productizing that, so so to speak. And just really making yeah. sure that that was something that everyone lived and breathed, and in particular as part of the recruiting process, was almost a, a ticket to the ball game. Were there any values that you can attribute that you think are the ones that are mission critical for any startup? Um, look, I think we've got one. It's called "It's Great Minds Don't Always Need to Think Alike." Is one that I'd probably call out, and what it really talks to is diversity. So I think what a lot of businesses often do is mm-hmm. they get a lot of groupthink through hiring, you know similar or all the same people and I think you've really got to challenge yeah. yourself when you're growing in particular as a founder group or as an executive group to say you know I, I probably don't know everything so how do I find someone smarter than me to tell me you know what to do in this particular topic or niche it's the best way to get leverage and I think mm. you've just got to make sure that that's something that's recognized uh, within the sort of leadership team but also you know that it's celebrated within the business so that's why we made that one of our values. Now you're very active, I guess, in in the fintech industry, and you always share your your views on where it's been and, and where it's going. We're at a bit of a tipping point right now, and I think you know, sadly there's going to be some businesses won't make it out of this this period. What are your thoughts as to where fintech in Australia goes from here, David? Look, I think fintech in Australia has seen an exponential growth curve in the last. 24 months in particular, I think if you sort of rewind prior to that, you know, the number of fintech businesses in this country could count on sort of one or two hands, um, whereas now you've got yeah. a material number in the, in, the, in, in, in the country. 
And I think one of the big themes that, and certainly a theme that we've embraced is this kind of collaborative theme whereby fintech doesn't necessarily equal bank challenger and exclusively bank challenger. Um, we've really embraced the collaborative side. Um, uh, and I'll sort of elaborate on that a little bit, a little bit further. Um, we, we've taken an approach that while we think the, and, and this, this is the same thing that we said to both um, lenders and investors back in 2012 and 13 when we were initially setting up the business, um, we think the mortgage process is broken, we think it's archaic, and we think we see no reason why you know, X, Y, and Z can't change. We've done that intentionally in a very collaborative way. So we've got a number of shareholders that are banks. Um, they're, they're non-voting or controlling shareholders. They're all minority shareholdings. But what that's allowed us to do is really work with, and we've sort of we've 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 really tried to leverage those relationships to to strategic strategic ends that work well for both the bank and for us. So if I go back to our first strategic investor was Macquarie Bank. Um, and there was a number of things in the mortgage application process that were offline and not digital. And we were able to, with Macquarie, through their investment, work with the right people on their side to ultimately drive major change to the way that front-end mortgage process worked um, through introducing things like um, you know, e-consent for an application, the concept of you know digital ID um, and, and all those sorts of things. And really, I see just in terms of a theme... Um, while I think the banks um, and the fin services organisations or the incumbents anyway all recognise the need to move and change, I think the the just the facts, the sheer realities of legacy and thousands of employees means that that's going to be a difficult thing for them to do on the whole. And so the collaborative side, I think, is the theme that should be embraced and hopefully we see more of it in the next few years. Yeah, we've we've seen some good examples in the US I think there's been something like a 30 to 40% increase in the downloads of um, financial apps that can then administer payment immediately to to the user. But then you contrast the UK with the business lending side, and there's some real challenges there where the big banks just aren't able to cope with the sheer amount of loans to process. Do you see there's a role right now that you know, businesses like Lendy, businesses like Prosper, et cetera, can play in actually, you know, getting very quickly to work with banks versus this being a, you know, kind of three to four year dance that we've seen previously? Look, the speed piece is always going to be a challenge. And like you call that Prosper there, you know, they're they're a great business and a great example. I think they've indirectly worked with the banks, right? So they they no doubt have bank warehouses funding their loans and their product at a retail or SME level has challenged the banks into bringing out their own products. So they've sort of stoked competition in that way and in a wholesale fashion worked with the banks. I think we'll see more and more of it. You know, in our conversations with all of the banks, um, I mentioned Macquarie before, we worked very closely with ANZ and, again, they're also a shareholder. You know, there's a general, there's a, there's, there's a very, very different environment in 2020 than existed in 2013 for that matter. Um, you know, 2013, the word fintech didn't really exist yeah. in the vernacular, let alone um, were there teams within the banks that were either set up to collaborate with or invest in startups that were either adjacent or complementary to the things that banks were working on. So I think the very nature of the way the banks are thinking about these things means the speed will increase, but the challenge still remains that most banks are built on 30, 40, 50-year-old tech and 
40, 50, 60 year old processes and have thousands of employees whose you know, very jobs you know, belong in those processes. So the challenge really is still going to be speed, but yeah. certainly, you know, certainly it's improving from where it was. And your, your thoughts on open banking? Hopefully this isn't too controversial, but you know, my view is that a lot of work has gone into, and this is sort of no disrespect to those um, that have put these many, many hours into the open banking process, but many, many hours have gone into something that, you know, kind of exists there today as a product. And the uptake, I think, has been quite slow. From our perspective, you know, we've had an integration with, you know, the business today that is Ilion um, Data, but was provisor and before that bank statement since 2015 and our customers have been able to engage with us in that way albeit you know there are sort of security and access concerns um, potentially that exist within that model but I think yeah you know ultimately what I'm most hopeful for around open banking is really the yeah. consumer education piece so the how the how is going to change but that's kind of irrelevant to a consumer what they really care about is what does it mean for me? Does it mean I'm going to be able to switch better, faster? Does it mean I'm going to be able to get better yeah. products that are more tailored to me, et cetera? I think the, the, the medium to long-term answer is yes, but short-term, yeah. I don't think it moves the needle. What do you think needs to be the, the next step then? You know, I, I completely agree. I think the thing that's frustrated me is that it's called CDR, which is the consumer data, right? And we're not, you know, most consumers don't know about it. What do you see as that kind of next step as to getting the education piece out? Look, I think ultimately the education piece, um, this is a little bit of a, a capitalist way to think about it, but the education piece comes from great products being built around it. And so I think just more more creators need to build it into their product. More people need to think about how might this help my onboarding experience. And then as we've seen with things like one-time passwords or you know, going back a decade or two, PayPal, um, they become ubiquitous because people expect that that's the way that you transact and you engage. And so, you know, if, if I sort of hone in on mortgages, for example, you know, the banks have been relatively slow. There's been a, and this is not a simple problem to solve, but there's been a, you know, a long debate around people's income and expenses from their bank transaction information and how that's used in relation to their suitability assessment. And there's a very, very complex discussion slash debate around, is it at all relevant? Do you use benchmarks like HEM or do you sort of try and build the categorization engine? Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, when there's some clarity around those sorts of topics, um, uh, if that then turns into adoption yeah. by a number of banks around, hey, well, this is now the new way that we onboard customers, then I think yeah. it's, it's those sorts of changes that bring the consumer adoption up. Um, there's, a, there's a line of thinking, and I think you touched on this before, David, that as we come out of covid is the you know what we've known previously ever going to come back? And are we saying hello to a, a new world? And within that new world comes a new way of working. And we're seeing people now working from home, reduced hours, different spending habits. If that is the case, how how do you think a business like yours could amend their their credit modeling to approve customers for home loans if the criteria they're currently based on? is 40, 50 years old, where you had a job for life, um, you had a regular income, and now there's a possibility that you're going to be in short-term work, working you know, three days a week, and maybe have a, you know, a, a gig job driving an Uber. Is it, it, are you seeing that there's a kind of recognition from the industry that actually if life changes, that we need to change how we, we assess credit? 
Yeah, look, it's, that's a really, really good question. The the interesting. And I'm not thing putting you us, on the spot for an answer. So <laughs> no, no, I'm happy to happy to answer it actually because it's something that we think relatively deeply about. Um, we're in the interesting position in the market whereby we don't actually provide credit. We provide a gateway for consumers to get credit from banks. And so really what we spend a lot of our time doing is kind of two things. One is how do we build the best tech to ultimately take in a bunch of inputs from a customer or from third parties about that customer? And how do we translate that into a credit decision across multiple banks you know, via an API effectively? And as part of that thinking, so that's kind of on one hand, that's taking kind of what exists today and effectively productizing it internally. One of the other sides, though, is, is in, in going through that process, we also um, are looking at process efficiencies, as I alluded to before. So we spend a bit of time with the regulator. We spend a bit of time with the banks looking at, well, yes, this is a, you know, here's an incremental change to an existing process, but do you even need to be asking that information? And one of those processes was, Last year, so ASIC ran what they called CP309, which was a consultation process into RG209, which is their regulatory guide to responsible lending. It hadn't been updated for a number of years, and it was relatively, it was not prescriptive, it was principles-based, but it was relatively high level and it didn't give a lot of examples. And there's this whole debate around, you know, should it become prescriptive, i.e., you know, here are the five things you need to do and therefore you've reached safe harbor, therefore, you, you know, it's responsible lending or was it principles-based? Our view was that it was principles-based, but we also um, argued relatively strongly both in our written submissions as well as at the open hearings that ASIC held in Sydney and Melbourne that there was an opportunity for ASIC to really, without becoming prescriptive, help the industry through examples and clarification that there is actually a spectrum of credit and people's behaviours are changing. And the way that we assess a borrower who, and I'll use two extreme ends of the spectrum here, who's a first home buyer with a 90% loan to value ratio, so a 10% deposit, and maybe a hundred bucks left over every month after they've got their new mortgage. Um, so it's their first time loan, it's relatively leveraged and there's not a lot of buffer there. We should probably assess them differently to the retired CEO who maybe has a 30 to 40% loan to value ratio on their five or $6 million property and has a share portfolio and maybe doesn't have any income, but they've got all of these liquid assets that they currently are using to um, ultimately fund a loan. Now, obviously they're two ends yeah. of the spectrum. Um, and in the middle, you have, you know, the changing ways of working, the gig economy, et cetera. And what we were really pleased with is ASIC actually came back and gave lots and lots of examples around various um, different, you know, v- various scenarios that sat in the middle. And their, their main view was that ultimately what, what a credit assistance provider, so someone like us or a credit provider, or i.e. a bank or a, a non-bank lender, needs to do is they need to look at those things and they need to assess, obviously, someone's financial situation as well as their needs and objectives. But in doing so, when they're making their assessment, the level of verification that they need to go into um, and the conclusions that they draw from that verification should be determined by things like that would exist on that spectrum. So... Um, I guess what I'm saying is the, the the door is very much open to what you described. Yeah. In terms of lenders actually moving um, the needle on their assessment processes, we're yet to see it. And I've heard some relatively disappointing comments come out of some of the banks, in a sense that you know they've just gone to the to the 
to the downside and said, well, yeah, well, cool. We've got these 26 new examples from ASIC. What are the, you know, what are the, what are the downside things we now need to do on our existing process as opposed to saying, how do we wholesale reevaluate this? But again, this is, that's what opens the door up for the new lenders like Athena and TikTok yeah. and Vault when they launch mortgages and 86400. You know, these guys don't have those legacy issues and um, mm. they're all free to take the new version of RG209 and, you know, hopefully build products around those customer segments. You could you could say that this this could be the catalyst for fintech 2.0 and open banking and the realization of this fully interconnected ecosystem where somebody's personal information can be used to actually help them versus you know the the, the existing models that we've got where you could be a highly successful business person but because you you're self employed you might get a a loan. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah, and and certainly what we've seen, you know, I've, I've found um, if you put the sickness and the deaths aside for a second, what I've found most fascinating about COVID-19 is we're in this kind of global work-from-home experiment that um, often when you're trying to do things, constraints are the best things because it forces you to focus and takes optionality off the table. And in doing so, um, you know, what we've seen, it's, it's been quite interesting if I sort of hone that down into, into mortgages, obviously, you can't really go into a bank branch anymore. And, you know, the six in 10 loans that are written today by mortgage brokers, you know, a mortgage broker can't really come to your home and you're probably not going to go to one of their offices. Um, and so the banks have very, very quickly moved, you know, we we're talking before about the speed of banks moving and collaboration, etc. Like, the number of banks that have brought out DocuSign for mortgage application and video VOI, um, where they've resisted these things for a number of years and they were forcing yeah. people to go into bank branches to verify their identity or yeah. whatnot. It's just, you know, I think to your point, I, I, I sort of totally agree that, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, the silver lining is, um, is, you know, a new era where technology is kind of at the forefront. Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Look, we wish you and the whole Lendy team best of luck navigating this period. And sounds like you're going to come out the other end, uh, hopefully in a strong position. Thank you very much. No worries. Thanks for having me, Dexter. Great to chat. That's the end of the show, folks. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks to our partners, Fintech Australia. Remember to subscribe if you're listening on Spotify or iTunes. And you can check out the show notes for additional information on how to join the talent market. Until the next time, keep safe. Thank you.